Welcome to Raising Our Voices. This month we are bringing you part two of Q&A, Is Self-Advocacy on the Map? Panel members are Peter Waters from Raising Our Voices, Jen Hartgrave from Women with Disabilities Victoria, Peter Ferguson from Brain Injury Matters, Chloe Stewart from ICANN Network, Liz Cairns from NDIA, Sue Smith from Saru, Trisha Maloney, who is comedian. Enjoy. Okay, let me run a bit. I'm in the demo. I'm on behalf of my question is um, directed to Liz Gann. Sorry, Liz. <laughs> um, if people with a disability are not, uh, aren't happy with their with what they're getting, right? Ha- um, th- through the NDIS, can self advocates play a role, and if so, how? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to get something uh, resolved is to have a conversation with your planner. And you might feel okay about doing that yourself or you might need some support to do that. Um, So that goes to advocacy more broadly, but also maybe um, working with the people that are around you to help you develop the the strategies to have that conversation. So that's kind of where self-advocacy can can come in. And you can go back to the groups that you might be connected with or um, just the people that sit around you who you trust. I just want to also confirm that uh, for a formal review, so this is when you've tried to resolve things locally and you're still unhappy with the decision that the agency's made, um, this formal advocacy has been funded by the Commonwealth uh, government under the National Disability Advocacy Program. And there's contracted advocacy providers in each of the trial sites who are available to support you go through a review process. Any more comments from um, panel? Just a follow-up question, Liz. You spoke briefly about um, the review process there. Um, if you um, don't need an urgent review, but you know, um, usually with, for example, DHS, they do a review of DS um, individual support packages every three years. So how often would the set reviews happen, and how how would that be organised? Okay. So we, um, we don't do this deliberately, but we use really confusing language. So the, rev- the word review stupidly gets used in two different ways by the agency. Um, it's really confusing. It's confusing for our staff and it's really confusing for everyone else too. So when I talk about my previous question talked about a review, and that's a review of a decision that we might have made. So the agency makes a decision about funded supports or your access to the scheme are the two typical things, and you're not happy with the decision that the agency makes. So the first, the first process is to see if you can sort that out with a planner. Um, you can lodge a formal application for review to the planner. That means that that decision gets looked at by someone other than them, so someone, still an agency staff member, but someone independent of the decision. 
Uh, if you're still unhappy with the outcome of that, you can then ask to go to the Australian Administrative Tribunal, and that's a much more formal process. And that's where the, um, the National Disability Advocacy Program support. So it's uh, in Bow and it's REAC, um, who are the contracted advocacy provider to help people go through that process. So that's the first use of the word review. I think your question though was around how long does a plan last? Yeah, so at the moment, um, we've been writing plans for 12 months. Um, I think it's fair to say that um, that was the right thing to do initially because we didn't actually um, know a lot about what was going to work for us and that's all part of being in trial as well. One of the things that we're looking at is um, how long can we write a plan for so we're not being overly intrusive in people's lives. You would still get contact from someone on behalf of the agency once a year and if anything changed earlier than you thought, then you can, you can come back um, to us as well. So if your circumstances change and your plan is no longer appropriate for your needs, you can come back earlier than you need to. Thank you. Um, there was a secondary thing that you just brought up, is that review is used in two ways. Now, for me, that makes sense, okay? But for people with disabilities, um, especially intellectual disabilities, using the word review in two different ways can be quite confusing, as you said, and it confuses even your staff. So I would like to suggest that you maybe find a different word for one. I'd be delighted to take that back. <laughs> that will help me in my argument, so thank you. We've got one more comment. Yes, I have a comment on uh, individual packages because I am independent enough to have a package that has uh, almost finished, I think. I don't know if it's still going, but um, with the individual packages, how long would it last for and when will it finish? Okay. Uh, look, I'm kind of speaking on behalf of the Victorian Department at the minute, which is never something I'm overly keen to do, regards to my colleagues who work there. Um, as I understand it, an ISP, which is what you're talking about, I think, does every ISP does have an end date or, or, a, or a review date, a scheduled review date, when the department has a look at it, um, hopefully make some contact with you to find out how things are going. So that's how I understand the department works. When you come, well, I, I guess maybe at that point, is your money still flowing? Yeah, okay. Oh, look, I think that question probably needs to go back to the Department of, of Human Services in Victoria. It's not one that I, I can tell you about what happens when you become a participant in the scheme, um, but it's probably not appropriate for me to say too much more on behalf of DHS, I don't think. We've got one more coming at the back. Yeah, just to let the panel know, the, the government and Great Southern Railways are working on making their trains disability friendly. And Geelong Station is now accessible for those of you that have had issues with that too. So yeah. they've, they've just finished the work down there, which is great. So come and visit Geelong, it's a promote, promotion for the city. Oh, oh, oh. 
I will be that one day. <laughs> okay, so it's my turn on the bike. Uh, and I, I really don't know who to put the green to, but I'm going to put it to two people. I'm going to put it to keep Melanie down with. And I'm going to put it back to you, Ken, because uh -oh. you are in the violence. I mean, after the past year, we say, I'm not going to bring up the paper. I'm going to ask it in my own way, because I'm not. Over the past year, we have seen a number of cases of a a boost in our CIUs and our workers. How can we as celebrities and our members play a role in protecting the most vulnerable of our people, people in CIUs? And I'm a bit of a bit of a guy to Thanks for that question. It's a good question. And like Trish was saying earlier, um, people with disabilities used to um, often live in institutions, and the abuse in there was an institutionalised thing. It was a, a systemic thing, but more and more as... Um, people with disabilities are receiving services in small groups and now individually the um, abuse they experience is becoming more and more secret. The reason we know about it, it the reason it's a big issue today is because of self-advocates and I think self-advocates hold the key to solving or to reducing um, I guess hold the key to solving the problem in a lot of ways because from our research we know that um, violence against people with disabilities in disability settings is very similar to violence against other types of people, so violence against women and family violence. And the thing they all have in common is differences in power. And the reason self-advocacy is so important is that's about empowering people with disabilities. Um, and, you know, one of the other great things about self-advocates is that they can train um, people working in sectors about safety. So at the moment, um, Women with Disabilities Victoria is running training about violence against women and family violence and gender equity for people working in disability services. And some of the women here today have been involved in that training. And the other type of education that workforces need is about how to be disability accessible. So places like centres against sexual assault, police stations, magistrates, courts, Geelong train station, <laughs> hospitals and family violence services. Self-advocates um, have so many strengths to be able to teach those organisations and those systems about our rights and our requirements. And Trish might like to add to that because she works in this area too. Trish? Yeah. Um, certainly. Um, I don't know if anybody's been aware of the destroy the joint controversy this week where... Uh, women with disabilities have been fighting to be included as a population group on the, dis on the Destroy the Group website, which 
um, numbers, the, the number of women who have been killed according by violence, by, their, by men's violence against them. And women with disabilities wanted to have our voice included and we wanted to be included in that count. And the response was from Destroy the Joint was they banned women with disabilities from posting on that and suggested that perhaps this information would be better provided on disability websites. When was this? Just during this week. And so the reaction from the self-advocates has been very strong. And not only that, but it's also been from my feminist colleagues have also been very disappointed. I actually had a politician who rang me and said, um, what do you reckon? Will I post on their website about in ensuring that we hear the voices of women with disabilities? I said, go for it. And so she did post on it because she was waiting to see if she would be banned. She wasn't because Destroy the Joint realised that they'd made a big mistake and they issued a policy, uh, an apology and said that if, if women wanted to be unmanned, unbanned, they could send them an email, which wasn't quite how it should be done. But it was the voices of the self-advocates who did this, who wrote in and said, this isn't good enough. And there's been a couple of very good articles written about it from the mainstream as well, because I think it's two-pronged. We actually need the mainstream community ensuring that all of their services are accessible to us. So Scope is at the moment developing toolkits for police station. How do you report a crime when you're the person who's the perpetrator of the violence against you is the person who is your communication? You are listening to Raising Your Voices on 3CR. This is, is self everything on the map. I've been giving a bit of bad news. We've only got time for one more clue before we have a bit of fun to end the day. Can we have Lisa Bonkett, please? Hi, um, I've got a question for you. How do you think self-advocacy groups can connect with other human rights um, advocacy groups, for example, Amnesty International? I just think, I think it's a great idea and I'm always saying groups should just go out quite broad be, beyond the usual things and I think how you connect, you go and knock on the door, you say we're here, we want to come and talk to you about human rights issues and, we, and I think like I was saying before when that happens you will see that thing that, often, that happens like with Sue, the, the sort of this shift or this light going on, oh yeah, maybe there is a whole sector of the community we haven't been thinking about. So knock on the door. Can, can I just add to that, that when I first started working in the family violence sector, I used to go along to meetings and I'd sit at the front, and in those days I was using a scooter, and I'd sit at the front and I'd say, how are you factoring women with disabilities into your policies and procedures? And it was like silence. Well, we hadn't even thought of that. And then after a while, I started going along and somebody else was asking the question. So I think that we have a responsibility to go and say, how are you making sure our voices are heard? So it's a two-way thing. They have to do it, but we have to do it too. Okay. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Sue. Any other comments? 
Just um, a comment that uh, Tricia made before, re-violence against women and this being relevant today, and analogous to how, um, you know, uh, we talk and, uh, you know, have discussions about disability. It's about language. You know, we say domestic violence, family violence. It sort of, it just dumbs it down. It's like violence against people with disability. Violence is violence, so we should be thinking in terms of violence by men against women, if that's what it is. You know, um, and I think it's sort of analogous to, to, to language that we use in any way around disability, et cetera, et cetera, marginalised <coughs> groups. And certainly the modern language is prevention of men's violence against women, because that's what the majority of violence against women is. And people say to me, what about the violence against men? And yes, we acknowledge that occurs, but the majority of violence is perpetrated by men, whether it's men against women or men against other men. So, and what I work with is I actually work with men who actually want to see an end to violence, and they're working to convince their mates that that's not on because the majority of men are not perpetrators of violence. So, you know, let's, let's give a, um, a cheer to the, to the people who are doing the right thing. And it is very important, and language is very important. Thank you. Can I now see again can I imagine a comedian in our life this Let me tell you that it's been a long time since I've done any stand-up, so I hope I don't fall down. <laughs> I used to do sit-down comedian, but now I've been doing stand-up. I started off doing stand-up comedy. And this is a bit of a, an homage to my friend Stella Young. Um, Stella Young was a very good friend of mine and we used to have some very deep and meaningful philosophical discussions about language and the use of language. Um, Stella started off doing advocacy and ended up in stand-up and I started off doing stand-up and ended up in advocacy. So it's very interesting. I actually, when I started doing stand-up, I did G's Louise. Has anybody heard of G's Louise? It's the training ground for women to, who want to become comedians. And uh, I'd retired from work, so I thought, yeah, I'll go and be a comedian. That'll be all right. So I got up to G's Louise, and we had to do a performance. And the first performance was at a hotel, and it was in the basement, and there was no lift, and there was no access onto the stage. So that was really good, that was my first thing. So they all went, oh, okay. I managed to get down there because, you know, on the crutches I can manage things. And I was determined I was gonna give a performance. So I got up there and the first thing I said was, thank you for making sure that you had an accessible venue to enable me to perform for you tonight. I wanted to talk a little bit about self-advocacy in my comedy because I've been married for 36 years, right? To the same man which is interesting. Um, yeah, thank you, it is an achievement. When I, when I gave up, my husband had already retired when I gave up work and uh, he was so pleased when I gave up work because he thought that'd be terrific. When I went back to work, he was actually more pleased because um, apparently I'm a pain to live with. Um, bit picky, you know, I, I'm, I get a bit toey when I'm home for too long. But we've had this relationship for 36 years and 
My husband's from originally from Sri Lanka. So we have this problem when we go out because people aren't sure which of us to talk to. Because um, I won't know anything because I've got a disability and he won't know anything because he's from an ethnic community. So it's like, oh, okay, so if we go to do banking, they talk to me. And if we go to a restaurant, they ask him what it is I want to eat. Right? And his response is, I wouldn't have a clue. And he said, whatever it is I choose, it'll be the wrong thing anyway. Last year, I went to Hawaii with my best friend, Leonie, and uh, we, tr we started to travel together a little bit more. And the longer we were in Hawaii, the more pissed off she became. And I couldn't work it out. I couldn't work out what the problem was. And I said to her, what on earth is the problem? She said, what do people expect from you? I said, I don't know. And she said, everywhere we go, people come up to you and say, you're so brave. <laughs> and because I don't hear it anymore, because I just don't take any notice of people. She said, what are they expected to do, stay home? And I said, well, yeah, probably. I must admit, um, it, was, it was an American cruise ship, so I don't know whether that had anything to do with it. But we got off, at, off the bus at every, everywhere there was to go. So we climbed volcanoes. Leonie doesn't have a disability, which means she was hauling me up volcanoes a lot of the time. And we went into forests and we did all of this. And we were the only ones who got off the bus because it was raining. What difference does it make? You'll soon get dry. Anyway, so one day we were at this waterfall. We got off the bus and it was, you know, you get mist from a waterfall and it was raining and we were the only two who got off the bus to have a look at the waterfall. And this woman came running over to me, got off the bus, came running over and pulled a raincoat over my head, right? And I went, and I went, what? And my friend Leone said, I'm getting wet too. <laughs> and she said, well, I've only got one raincoat. And I said, I really don't want this raincoat. But she said, but you're getting wet. You might get sick. So my friend might get sick. Then this year we went um, to Ireland. I got a research grant and Leone came with me because my husband didn't want to go. He says, why would you want to go to Ireland? I've seen it on the telly. <laughs> so I rang Leonie, I said, would you like to come overseas with me? And she said, yeah, okay. So she forced herself, of course. And we get off the plane after 24 hours on a plane, we get into Dublin and I booked a hotel room and I said to the travel agent, please, it's got to be accessible. Because once you tell, take my calipers off, I'm useless, that's it, I can't walk, right? So they said, no problem, we've rung them, it's okay. So we get to the hotel and it's gotta be a twin beds. I mean, I love Leonie a lot, but I really don't wanna sleep with her. Anyway, so we get there and I, 10 o'clock at night, we get into the room and it's a double bed. And I went, it's a double bed. And they said, this is what our accessible rooms have. I said, well, it's not good enough. I really do not want a double bed. But I thought, I'll have a look at the bathroom while I'm here. It was a shower over a bath, right? Cannot do that. I need a stepless shower and I need a shower chair. So I said to them, look, if you get me a twin room that's got a shower, then get me a plastic chair, I'll be okay. And they went, oh, plastic chair. Where are we gonna get one of them? <laughs> I said, 
you have a pool. No, we don't have one of them. I said, well, look, let's have a look at the, the room and I'll see what I can do. So we get in and it had a small lip, you know, about so high. I could manage that with my crutches and managing. And they bought me an armchair, an upholstered armchair that was purple. <laughs> so I would have spent, <laughs> you're laughing, I would have spent my whole trip in Dublin um, looking like a smurf. So I said to them, forget it, I'll top and tail and I'll have a shower tomorrow because I'd actually rung up and done my own investigations and, and, and found a place where the, the, the father of the owner was a paraplegic. So all of the cabins were set out, step-in showers, well, stepless showers with shower chairs, everything I needed for me. So that was fine. And then we started to travel around because I was doing research, so I had to, I had to travel, oh, what a shame. Anyway, so I get to all these places and everywhere I went, it was a shower over a bath. I said, but how can you call these accessible? And the problem in Ireland is they don't have strong self-advocacy groups. In Ireland, they act under the Lunacy Act of 1871, right? <laughs> what does that tell you? They haven't even, haven't even ratified the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, right? So the, all of their rights are really stuffed up. There's some really good groups. There's a, they've got a SARU there now, which is doing some good, good work. But when I spoke to people with, that, with disabilities, they were so far behind us, and I'd say things like, so where are you living? Oh, with Mum. Do you, are you going to leave home? No. Um, have you thought of leaving? No. So what do you do? Nothing. And I thought, we're so different here. We actually have a voice and we've developed that voice because we've worked together in our self-advocacy. So in Ireland, it is unlawful for a person with an intellectual disability to have sex or marry. Isn't that Amazing. So I thought to myself, well, I'm going to have to change this, aren't I? So I started agitating a little bit while I was there. And I noticed that they are starting to move. So they, they've started, they're going to have a, a new legislation which is about supported decision-making. I did talk to the police about this. I said, what's this about this, this legislation which means that people with intellectual disabilities can't have sex or marry? He said, well... I know that's in place, but he said, I don't know anybody who's enforcing it. The police certainly aren't, and certainly we know that people with disabilities are having sex. I thought, well, if you don't, then you're mad. Anyway. So I'm just going to close up now because I think that this is the future. You know, let's use our humour, let's use our combined voices to say it's not good enough. Life is for all of us. We've all got the same rights. By the way, I hate the term special needs. I don't have any special needs. I have the same needs as everybody else and I have the same rights as everybody else. I have the right to health, justice, education, a job. We all need a job. I have the rights, the same rights as everybody else and I have the same responsibilities as everyone else. So I've taken this as an analogy. I've got the whole world in my hands and so have all of you and in the future, the world is going to be our oyster. And I don't know how I got from having the world in my hand to being the world is my oyster. But life is good and I think that this is just the beginning of a brand new world. So thank you very much everybody for coming along. I hope you enjoyed that little, little touch.
You've been listening to Raising Our Voices. Thanks to Saru and panel members and everyone who came to our Q&A. You can listen to Raising Our Voices again on Wednesday the 9th of March at 6pm. Coming up next is Tamil Voices.